Welcome back, and in case you've just tuned in, it is Radio Veritas 576 AM, that station that gives you the good news and the good music for a change. And today we are giving you the good people for a change. I'm joined in studio by a young man uh, who is a medical practitioner who has gone back to school. He is one of those men that are making us proud. He's one of those that has defied all the odds and all the obstacles that life has thrown before him. Dr. Stembele, tell me some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome in your life. It's a lot. There are many. You know, like for instance, particularly with education, you see. So at, at a certain point, we couldn't, my grandmother couldn't afford to take us to like, well, you know, the, it's always perceived that like a, a multiracial or a white school is better than middle, a school. Middle school. Yeah. Yes. So um, they, she tried, but she was failing at the time. So I thought, okay, maybe let me take over and let me try and speak to my teachers and see if they can assist me with that. So I was in grade four. We started applying for bursaries to other schools. Oddly enough, then I got um, an opportunity to go write an aptitude test at a school. And then I went to go write and I passed with thank you. Which school was this? Huh? Which school did you go and write this to? The International School of Bukutatswana. Okay. Yeah, so I went to go In write. Mafigeng. Yes. Okay. I went to go write and I passed. And then, obviously, because I'm from a, I was from an um, underprivileged background, so the scholarship was a full scholarship. So basically, boarding, everything, because I couldn't travel back and forth. Yeah. to school. So I got the scholarship that's how I I got paid for from grade 5 up until matric. So that's where you went to school in uh, Mafikeng? Yes. Okay. Boys school co-ed? Co-ed. So here you finish varsity and you think I'm going to be an engineer. Yes. You I get finished. to varsity and you change your mind yes. and you get to medical school. What was medical school like for you? <sighs> First year overwhelming. I felt like I needed to prove to my family that okay I'm not gonna like quit this time you know change my mind again you know because the thing is when I left engineering I was like okay for me I found engineering too abstract because you do like calculus like a lot of things that you oh, physics basically talking about forces you can't really see you can visualize but you cannot see it you can't touch it so uh, since I, I was into art I wanted something tangible something I can see because art is very you see it you know All, although you to get the, the emotion around the painting or something like that but you know most of the things are tangible so I, I was like I sat and I looked and I'm like which career you know is very tangible I'm like okay maybe medicine because I was great in biology so maybe let me try it so it was like a I, I guess it was God directing me because it was it, it didn't for me at the, now in hindsight it was in a decision I vehemently took like you know what I'm going to medicine I want to be a doctor he was like a there was like no a, because some people say they have the passion they've always known that they no, wanted to be doctors they always played the nurse and no, uh, they had the my brain. story was completely different medicine I was never even in my mindset so you meet these other students who are very passionate about medicine mm -hmm. and when you are taking medicine as an academic study yes. and you get there it's academic I'm sure the first year is very academic very, very. then possibly second year it's still academic mm -hmm. then when do you start going to the to the wards and start so in second year um, our first block was um, anatomy so we have we are six students given a dead body. We are in this laboratory and then we have to like cut and basically uh, like familiarize ourselves with the anatomy of the whole body. So in Pretoria what they do, most in other universities like VETS and uh, UCT, they do the, the anatomy program for the whole year. So in Pretoria they are very, it's like military style. So they do it over like six, eight, six or eight weeks. So basically a week for each part of the body. So we'll do the respiratory system in one week and in that week you write the test at the end 
and you need to pass all those tests and pass the block test to pass that program. So it was it was intense in terms of the amount of work because the book is really thick, and it's more it's not more about you know anatomy is not about understanding it's more about um, memory you have to remember where certain things fit where certain things are you know it's basically it 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 sets you up for what now when you're gonna learn the understanding you're gonna know okay oh this nerve is here so it supplies this part of the body type of thing mm -hmm. you see so it was very it was very very overwhelming and the thing is what was more overwhelming is that ev everybody else wanted to know what's going on in the body whereas it's like uh, I'm not really interested. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm here. Yes, I want to do well, but I'm not really, you know, and I used to surround myself with a lot of eager people. And like, so my group was, I was like, oh my God, it's so fascina fascinating. And I'm, and in my head, I'm like, but it's not. We often hear stories of people throwing up when they see blood, throwing up when they see certain things. And yeah, did I you think, have any of those yeah, experiences? I think maybe one one girl in our class, but it's not something that's common. Maybe in other universities, I can only speak of my, my experience. But uh, we only had one girl who threw up when she saw a dead body. You know, we had like an incident where there's a there's a night where you can invite your where like basically you're encouraged to invite your parents so they can actually see what you do in school. So this um, this family had lost an uncle where they didn't know their whereabouts. You see, so they were they'd been looking. And so you bring them to the hospital or to the school? no? You bring them to the lab. Okay. So basically, it's it's at night. It's like a black tie affair. Then the teachers like explain, oh, your kids are doing so well. This is what we do here. So they go into, if they want to, they go in and see when we cut the bodies and everything. So there was a family. Who so you actually get people's dead, real dead bodies, yeah, not it's, dog it's, dead bodies. Yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not like a Like Batu. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it, it's, we are told that it's body, you know, when you, when you, when you um, donate your body for academic study. Yeah. But uh, I don't, I really don't believe that it's. It's like that with everybody who was there, because especially in my year, there was a family who came, and they actually recognized one of the bodies as one of their family members. Oh no! Yeah, so it was a little bit of a dramatic situation, but yeah. So you cut on real dead bodies, and it's a real experience. What is it like dealing with uh, uh, life? Because it's like life. You guys hold life in your hands because you are there at the beginning when mm -hmm. people give birth. And you're there at the people at the end when people yeah, say goodbye. You know what? It's a double-edged sword, I can say, because on the one side, it 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 gives a, a whole a lot of doctors like that, you know, that God complex where they feel like their opinion is absolute, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, you know, for me, it's like it's 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 a, it's a pleasure if you can if when you give when you assist someone to give birth. Or especially if it's a difficult delivery, you know, to assist someone to make sure that the child is safe, the mother is safe, you know, everybody is well. You know, for me, the greatest pleasure is when I discharge a patient from the hospital. The hospital is not a place where people go visit. It's not like the mall, you know. It's supposed to be a place where you go, you, you get efficient service and the best treatment, and then you go home, you see. The best part of for me is when I discharge a patient. It's never a nice experience when someone dies, but I guess you get desensitized after a while. You've seen so many people die. You know, I mean, like with the plight of HIV in South Africa, like we see a lot of people and it's a lot of young people, which is very disheartening, dying every single day. And I feel like the general public doesn't understand that the epidemic is still there. Yes, we've made tons of strides in assisting with HIV, especially now that every 
like even when you're diagnosed you know before you had to your cd4 count had to be less than 200 then it changed then it was 500 now once you diagnose if your blood count if your test blood, and treat yeah blood results are normal they give you the the treatment which is trying to curb the scourge of hiv but i feel a lot of people still are very ignorant about it, the epidemic they don't want to test and we see a lot of young people, 16-year-olds who've been on treatment for two years, and it's not vertical transmission where they got it from the mother at birth. It's people who are engaging in unprotected sex and they're getting sick. Should be people still be dying of AIDS in 2017? I don't think they should be. It's For me, it, when you're young, like a 23-year-old who's diagnosed with HIV, unless it was through maybe like rape or child molestation or maybe some some other way except from having consensual um unprotected sex you shouldn't be i feel like it's just being ignorant like and irresponsible yeah it's very 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 irresponsible because it's something that can be handled yes and i feel like the thing is with you know the there's a problem with the how p the pr around hiv is handled you know Yes, we were trying to de-stigmatize HIV, but with stigma, you still had people fearing getting the virus. Now, with destigmatization, the fear is gone. You understand? People are just acting irresponsibly, knowing that ah, even if I'm 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 I'm, I'm HIV, I'm gonna get the treatment. Others don't even test. They don't even care. They don't even wanna know, which is like failing people because now you still must prevent yourself from getting HIV. You see, not that. Not not only that if you're gonna if you if you have it because most of the of the PR in the ads we see on television is like if you have HIV nothing has changed you know you're still the same person whatever and yes that's true and I encourage that but also people must still prevent themselves from HIV you know so they still must use the barrier methods of HIV the condoms condom use you know abstinence or having one sexual partner but people are just reckless know, right and I feel like for me the disheartening thing like I'll say it again is the amount of young people. 22, like a 22 or 23 year old, a 25 year old, even if a 30 year old shouldn't be having HIV. Like you were born towards the time of, 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 of freedom. So you don't really, you're not really of the old mindset of, of uh, you know, you can't use condoms or whatever. If you're born in 1987, 1989, 1993, come on, you should be knowing about HIV and preventing yourself. Wow, let's take a musical break. Let's take a musical break and we'll be back after this message. In case you've just tuned in, we are joined in studio by Dr. Stembele Machals and he's a registrar at uh, Chris Hani Baragwanath. He's sharing with us his journey as a young black medical doctor who's gone back to school and who's been practicing in the field of health and uh, doctor before we, we we went to the break we were told you were telling us about this scourge but let's move on from this scourge because um uh, we, we we we've had enough about <laughs> that <laughs> uh, i would like i'd like you to take me back to to your training days uh, and uh, so you you finished your training you finished your training uh, after what five years ah uh, six years six years mm -hmm. Then what happens after that? So basically, you uh, get assigned to a hospital. Then you do two years of community of sorry of internship, where you are basically rotating through the departments of the hospital, basically okay. from gynae to peds, to orthopedics, family medicine, psychiatry, all mm -hmm. the fields. So basically, to you are given a chance to work at every department because you know as a doctor you have to be you are given a holistic approach. When you are when you when you get a patient, you might. You might come basically to a gynae hospital, but the problem is surgical. 
So you can't be like, oh no, I'm working in the gynec department. I don't know nothing about surgery. Exactly. You went through internships, so you know what happens in surgery. You know exactly. how to treat those ailments. So basically, you do two years of internship, and then one year community service, where again you have to apply to go to a certain hospital. So basically, it's just, it's just the the government's way of giving back. So you work in a public setting. Then after that, you get uh, created from the HPCC as a as a. Uh, private practitioner. So basically, if you want to go into private, into practice. private practice or open your own practice, mm-hmm. then that's when that's the only that's only after community service that you can be able to do that. Okay. Yeah. So you never decided to go into private practice? No. It, it, I grew up in Soweto, so I've well, even though I've never really been sick enough to either sleep in hospital, I, I've always known how it is. It is in public health. You know, I know the long queues and everything. So if I'm also going to go into private where I'm seeing nine, ten patients a day, sometimes if it's not if on a non-busy night, whereas I could go to a, uh, to a hospital where I'm getting more experience. You see, I'm like in public, there's a large, large number of volumes. You'll find even international people like from the U.S., from Canada, if they want, if they want to see a lot of patients, they come here and okay. they... And they probably spend like maybe six months seven months yeah so they can because they the volumes are less that's why their healthcare is so good because there's enough healthcare to go around there's enough hospitals there's enough coverage and the government really puts a lot of money into healthcare yeah. whereas art in our setting is sort of different different a lot of large volumes and we have a lot of people who are living in absolute poverty as well yeah. so you'll find a lot of people a lot of people not having access to private healthcare. so you'll find them sitting in the queues you know at big hospitals or clinics you know, it's all that type of thing. And the thing is, the fact that we are the number one uh, in the world with TB and HIV yes. also plays a role. You okay. see, a lot of people, are immune systems are compromised, so they are prone to a lot more diseases. Hence, I wanted to work in public because I wanted that exposure. Because even with that exposure, when you go to private, then you are like a super doctor. Of course. Yeah. You've seen a lot of... You know it all. You've, yeah, I've seen you've it all. You've been around the block. Yeah. yeah. You've been around the block. Now, uh, were there plans for you to go into private practice? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. It's like, you know, the things I only know once I, I qualify as a, as a consultant. If my services are more needed in private or needed, or if like, for instance, of course you have to think about the financial aspect. You also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion that yes, you want to be a pioneer. Yes, you want to help people, but you also need to put bread on the table. You also need, to, you like I want to be a success. So for me, Having financial success is going to allow me to have influence over certain areas in life so I can be able to assist other people who are on the come up. So if I don't have that money, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I just want to be that you know, voice box where I'm just basically spewing out ideals and I'm not really actively doing anything about it. But the it. argument is there's, uh, uh, there's, uh, the money in, in your field is quite handsome, yeah, be but, it public. But there is a vast difference between private, private money and public money obviously when you're working in public you are paid by the government so the money is good but it's not it, it doesn't compare to what you get in private although in private obviously you have to have things like well you need you need it in, in public but public the government really covers you in terms of negligent case when you are involved in a negligent case or there's a yes. litigation type of thing but in private you have to pay like things like MPS like basically a, an insurance company where if you're involved in litigation and you're found guilty, then that money will come from the insurance. Okay. But still, the, even with, with that said, the money from private is not the same. Money. You currently specialize in what are you specializing in? Emergency medicine. What's that? 
So basically, you work in casualty. You're involved in all forms of casualty. Like for instance, I'll make an example with Bara. Bara is casualties divided into segments. So you'll have trauma, which deals with obviously the hectic car accidents, things that are ma mainly surgical. If someone is cut, deep wound, there's plastic surgeons there, there's surgeons there, there's orthopedic when your bro bones are broken in many places, type of thing. And then there's medical casualty, which deals like with diabetics who come in and DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis people with heart failure, all those things. Then there's also a gynae um, admissions, which is like their own casualty. So those are the, those are the, the gynecological emergencies and obstetric uh, emergencies. Then you have pediatrics also, when you have kids who are coming in in an emergency setting. Yeah. So their casualty is divided, so that you can are able to provide the people with optimum care. Because if now if you imagine if now you have a gynae emergency, a surgical emergency, like an orthopedic emergency, all sitting waiting to see one doctor. It yes, doesn't yes. work. Whereas if they are, it's subdivided and there's teams working in those different departments, then yeah. it works. Okay, okay. Yeah. So basically, when you're an emergency, emergency physician, you can work in all the casualties. Our job is to, to receive you, make the initial diagnosis, stabilize, then you can get the definitive management from the specifics. For instance, if I have, if I get a, like a trauma patient, and I diagnose that okay, he's broken bones, he's in a coma, probably there's bleeding, there's a, a intracranial bleed, things like that. I stabilize the patient, make sure that he gets the initial CT scan and everything. While I have once I have all those results and the patient is stabilized enough to be seen by the by the person who's gonna provide the uh, the definitive care. So obviously I'll call the orthopedic uh, surgeon for the broken bones, and I'll call probably the neurologist or the neurosurgeon regarding the, the brain bleed. You see, then they come and see the patient, we make a collective decision, and then the patient either is admitted to ICU or is admitted to a specific ward. So, for, for instance, if the, the main problem that's preventing the patient from being well is the neurosurgical uh, problem, then obviously going to go to a neurosurgery ward, then they'll, uh, they'll get a, a consult from the orthopedic regarding the, bo the broken okay. bone. Okay. So it's basically that we, we I receive you, we stabilize, basically that's the real medicine. Emergency medicine, I feel like it's, it's okay, the because we, so we get it, we get you raw yeah. as you came in. And then the other people then, especially in a tertiary setting, then they get you once you're stabilized well enough that you can get the definitive care. I'm told that uh, you would rather go to a public facility, especially at their emergency section, because you get best care than you'd get in a private setting. I would, Is that true or yes, false? I would. I would say yes. You Tell know, me why. For me, I think... My doctor was actually telling me this because he is actually specializing, by the way. And he mm. says to me, he, uh, he says to me, for emergency care, mm. you would rather be rushed off to a public facility, be it or Artambo or Bara or wherever. Yeah, because you see there, you, you get, basically you have a lot of hands on you. You have the, the interns who are there working, the registrars are there, the MOs are there, a lot of nursing staff. Yes, it's still a bit understaffed, but... It's a lot of people on you, you know, and the thing is, we, the, there's a prioritization in every hospital when you're a red patient, an orange patient, a yellow patient, basically depending on your vitals and your state at the time. So I would advise like people go to a public health care when they are in an emergency setting because you, like everybody is there, you know, they, they don't have to call out, oh, there's an orthopedic patient that possibly might need, might, might need um, emergency surgery. Do I mind coming? Because the thing is, with private, it's more of a consult. So you have people working in casualty, and usually those are MOs. In private, it's rare that you'll have a registrar working in their casualty, because registrar had to be located at a at a tertiary hospital. 
Okay. You see, okay. so because they're in the study program, and then there's a consultant on call there every single time to us if there's something a difficult case, then he can come and assist. Unlike in a private setting. Yeah, it, they are there, but you have to call them from home, and they have to exactly. come from home. Okay. Whereas most of the time in public, they are on on site. Not all the time. I'm not gonna lie. They're not all the time. They also are probably at home, but they are quicker to respond because our mandate is not, you know, private healthcare. It's yes, it's about making sure the patients are well, all that jazz. But they're, they're, they're a business at the end of the day. True. You understand? They are driven by the capital. That yeah, they, they even charge us for a syringe that they yes. use. Yes, so they're a business. But in, in, in public health care, that is removed. So the only focus is proper patient care. Because you also want stat- good statistics. You don't want to hear people are dying at Barra because of one, two, three. So we need to make, we make sure that when you come in, you are stabilized. Whatever happens in the wards afterwards, especially from my setting, I, I don't know because I don't work in the wards. I only work in casualty. But when you come in, you are unwell, you are, that's the best place to be because we're trying to stabilize you as quickly as possible and make good decisions because you also need to, you know, in private, they'll, uh, you'll have a headache for three days and they'll ask to do a CT scan. What are you going to see on a CT scan for a patient who has a headache for three days? Yeah. There's a lot of unnecessary tests, which everybody knows they do in, 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 in private. Whereas in, in government, because we have to think about cost. So we only do the really necessary uh, tests so we can be able to see what's going on with you. The thing is, another thing, we, you need to kind of expose a patient to a lot of radiation just in J because you want that money that, that's going to come with the CT scan. You understand? You have to do the appropriate things that are going to... They're not going to help the patient or that, that, that are going to help in your management. If, if the CT scan is not going to help in, in your management, then why do you do it? I'm told uh, the medical fraternity is not yet fully transformed. How accurate is that? Uh, you know, there's a lot of strides that are, uh, are made. I feel like we've, we're leaps and bounds ahead from what we were before. You understand? Because now we practice a lot of, like, it's evidence-based medicine. If it's if there is no evidence supporting something, then why do you do it? You see, there's a lot of there's a lot of tests that we used to do in the past, or ways of treating a patient we used to do, and they were completely unnecessary. Because now we are forced to read journals, you know, to read about um, articles which where they've made a study about something and then they saw its effect. Like for instance, how we used to treat pneumonia in the past and how we do it today is completely different. We need we, like every, every medicine is ever evolving every single day. Do you understand? So you, you need to always familiarize, familiarize yourself with what's happening currently, you know, how to treat the patient. So it, it's, it's not fully transformed, obviously, because we're not a first world country. We're a third world country. But for a third world country, I feel like we're doing well. What are some of the challenges you face as a young black doctor? Um, you know, I, th- I feel like a lot of cases that you, especially in private, in, sorry, in public, they are... They get closer to home sometimes, you know, because you, you basically see the social injustices that are prevalent in our community. You basically, because like I said, you, you have the front seat to everybody's problems. So you sit in a consult and you hear about gut-wrenching things that are happening to people and children and women, you know. So it's, and men. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's very... I don't know. For me, it's it's it's, it's disheartening because some some of the people, you, or like for instance, if you grow up in the township like I did, some of the people I see are people I grew up with. You you understand? And I see like certain, like a lot of things that are happening to them which I didn't know were happening to them. You see? So I feel like 
oh, I could have helped type of thing. So it's a bit more of a personal thing for me when I see like people suffering that I know or, mm. or other black people who are suffering or other black people who probably are just not getting the appropriate care because they're just poor, you know? Because for instance, like I'll make an example. Um, how do you, it's like, how do you expect someone to take, me like you always say, okay, you take this medication three times a day after your meals. But you, do you ever ask your question, you ever ask yourself, do you know if the person is going to get the meal? Yes. You see, and it's, we, have, we have a difficulty with compliance with a lot of, 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 my, of the black community. Because I, either because of lack of education or just being irresponsible or just the other people, they don't have a meal. So if they're not going to eat, they're not going to take the meds. You understand? There's a, lot, there's a lack of, of education and we get a lot of patients who come in with liver failure or kidney disease because they... They still practice traditional methods of, of medicine and those things are not tested in a laboratory. So some of the ingredients are toxic to the body. You see, the people come in with jaundice and then we have to, now I have to find out what was in the med first because they're not going to bring Imbiza to the hospital yes. and say, okay, there, we yes. can take it to the laboratory so they can do a drug test on it. You see, so they come in already sick and they've been sick for weeks. And that's, that's another painful thing for me. It's like, you know, a lot of, we have a poor health reporting behavior as black people. So we'll sit with a, with, a, with a family member for six months, bedridden, sick as... Not going to the hospital. Yeah. Sick. Self-medicating. Uh, yes, or, or seeking traditional med ways of, of medicine. Probably sometimes they're not... person is sick, but they're not seeking medical care. And then to, when the person is to, on the verge of death, or basically, then we run with them to or the basically they are at end stage disease where, where even if you bring them to us, what are we going to do? It's basically it's, it's, it's around the time of palliative care where you're just waiting for the person to die. And then when you explain that to the family, it's as if you don't want to assist. And you're like, but you sat with the family member for six months and they've been sick for all this time and you never sought medical care. And then how do you expect me to now perform miracles? Because medicine is not miracles. That's another thing we see with patients that you give a patient medicine today, they expect the ailment to be gone by tomorrow. Medicine is not magic. You know, the body has to get enough concentration of the medi medication for it to work. That's why they say you must finish the course of antibiotics for it to work. If you're going to quit halfway, it's going to cause resistance. Next time you take that medication, the germs already know what it looks like, what it, what it does. So they know it's not going to work anymore. You see? So another challenge is, obviously, a lot of, some of the departments are still raci racially driven. You know, you know when you go for an interview. Departments with, like? Um, like, for instance, if you want to be a registrar, for, like I'll make an example. You, like, it's, it's an unspoken, it's an open secret, but nobody really speaks about it, except in, in corners or passageways. That if, obviously, if you're going to go, if there's a six registrar posts and there's like six, um, um, like you're seven and you're the only black person and you have the same qualifications everything trust and believe the chances of you getting that post are next to zero wow in case you've just tuned in it is radio veritas 576 am that station that gives you the good news and the good music for a change and dr stempele is saying to us the medical fraternity has not fully transformed very sad indeed do not touch that dial